The passage we'll be reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, which can be found on page 1015 of the Pew Bible. Uh, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to, the, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, you are so good to your people. And even as we experience the difficulty of living in a world that has rejected you, uh, we come before you with praise this morning because you have blessed us in such a way that we can endure that hardship and the difficulty that will come from that reality and that you give us hope for a better future. We pray this morning that as we read this, these words from 1 Peter, that you would be at work in us to give us strength, to give us courage, and to help us to persevere. And we ask this in the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I have opened several recent sermons with stories from church history that mostly have to do with periods of persecution in the life of the church. It's a theme that may feel a little bit repetitive to us from time to time, to just continually return to stories from church history about seasons of persecution, but it's a theme that's related to and really has been driven by the content of the book that we are studying during this season as a church. The subtitle of this, this preaching series is Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture, and that subtitle was chosen because it helpfully points us to the dominant theme of 1 Peter as a whole. Because while Peter wasn't writing to believers in a post-Christian context, he was certainly writing to believers in a pre-Christian world in which Jesus was seen as a cult leader and his followers as untrustworthy maniacs. Throughout the Christian, although the Christian movement would go on to grow throughout Europe, reaching all the way into North Africa, all the way throughout Asia to the coast. Uh, of China and all the way into Britain, 
within only a few centuries, at the point that the book of 1 Peter was being written, it was only a seedling of what it would one day become. And so for first century Christians, we could say that they were reading the book of 1 Peter, they were reading in the book of 1 Peter how to reflect Christ in a pre-Christian culture that did not yet know Him, and a pre-Christian culture that approached Him with hostility. So the words of 1 Peter have been cherished by the church throughout her history as a continual reminder of the call to persevere, to endure, and even to thrive in the midst of trial and abuse. And as I reflected on the passage that we're looking at this morning, I couldn't help but think of several examples from church history of the principles being lived out that we will see in this passage this morning. And I can't help sharing yet another one with you uh, as we begin. When William Tyndale was born in the year 1494, owning an English language Bible was a crime that was punishable by death. Even though translations into English had been completed in the decades before he was born, laws had been passed banning their possession and destroying all known copies. God's people need God's Word, and Scripture should be accessible to everyone. So he worked to translate an English-language Bible directly from Greek and Hebrew sources rather than from Latin, which is what many of his contemporaries had been doing, and he distributed his work with the newly invented printing press. And for his effort, Tyndale was betrayed by a close friend, arrested, held prisoner in a castle dungeon for a year before, before being convicted of heresy and subsequently executed. As he was being tied to the stake where he would be burned, he proclaimed loudly and clearly for everyone who was there to hear, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He did not recant. He did not apologize. He did not back down, all while knowing the price for his faithfulness to Christ. And for almost five centuries, people have told the story of his courage, but he is not alone. Because church history is full of courageous, godly servants who persevered, even though the price for doing so was high. What compelled them to press on? What compelled William Tyndale to press on? What compels them to remain faithful to God's calling, even when it might demand their lives as it did for William Tyndale? The passage we're looking at this morning helps us understand their their courage and I believe will help us to develop courage ourselves if we write this passage on our hearts and depend on the Spirit to make it so. Because there is a cost associated with following Christ. It is a social, cultural, relational cost, and moments come in each of our lives when we recognize it, and we have to decide whether or not we're willing to pay it. The cost of our willingness to obey Christ To know him not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord, whom we obey, is one that he calls us to pay, even if it demands everything we have. So far in the book of 1 Peter, we've been reminded of the magnitude of gospel hope and the promise that we have that's been completed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has secured for his people an eternal inheritance, Peter said in chapter 1, verse 4. And the life-changing nature of that good news drives believers toward new lives that no longer conform to the pattern handed down to them from the world before them. 
those called to come and follow Christ find themselves out of place in this world. And we, the world that we call home right now, in which we feel as sojourners and exiles, according to Peter, in this land that is not our home. For his first readers in the first century and at various points in the history of the church and for many Christians today, the concept that those who cling to, to Christ in this life and in a world that has rejected him are strangers and exiles needs no explanation. And so God calls his people to honorable conduct in a world that is not their home. Conduct is a word that Peter uses more than any other New Testament author, and it refers simply to the way that someone's character shapes their behavior. It is the working out of an inward state of someone's heart in their life and in their actions. And beginning here in verse 13 and for the rest of the book, Peter is going to explain what that honorable conduct looks like for the follower of Christ. And knowing what we do about Peter at this point, we might approach this section of the book with some assumptions about what he's about to say. Peter, after all, was the loudmouthed and brash disciple. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter's the one who drew his sword and cut off someone's ear because he was ready for a fight. He's not exactly, not exactly the premier example of remaining even-tempered. So having read, at this point in the book of 1 Peter, how he's set the stage for the clash that will happen between Christ's followers and the world around them, we might assume that Peter is about to draw his sword in defense of Christ's name. But instead, Peter's lengthy comments on what honorable conduct looks like begin with the words, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's a pretty stunning reversal of the character that we saw Peter display in the gospel narratives. But beginning in Acts chapter two, Peter has been raised up into salvation and transformed by the Holy Spirit, given the responsibility to help lead the church. Rather than swinging a sword, Peter is moving in the opposite direction, it seems, instructing believers to subject themselves to earthly authority. Throughout the centuries, this passage has been interpreted in various ways, depending somewhat on who holds that earthly authority at the time this passage is being read. This verse and others like it, like Titus 3.1, which says, remind believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Passages like this one in 1 Peter and Titus 3.1 have been read differently depending on who those rulers are, who those authorities are at the time. And the instruction to be subject to human institutions is at the center of this question. What does it really mean to be subject. Often this verb is read as an instruction for believers to obey or to support the authorities in their lives. Drawing on other passages like the one in which Jesus taught that all people should give to Caesar what is Caesar's, some people read here in 1 Peter a message to obey the law set by those with the power to make the law. And as this passage declares, it is for the Lord's sake that we do so. It's argued that our obedience to authority is part of our worship. And that line of reasoning has even shaped governments at certain points in history. Drawing on these passages and passages like Romans 13, 1, 
which says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This idea propped up the power of medieval authority, the, no the noble structure, and those people of nobility who believed that God had given them the exclusive right to rule, and that anyone who resisted their authority was essentially re rebelling against God himself. And all of that might shape the way that we read 1 Peter 2.13. And we might even be fine with that if we like who's in power right now, if we like the authority that we see right now. The way that we read this passage and all these others is shaped by whether or not we're happy with the, with the direction that things are going right now. Certainly, a scriptural directive to obey authority is easier to hear if it's something that we would have been happy to do anyway. So the occupant of the White House or the majority holders in the House or the Senate or the CEO of the company that we work for or the regional manager or the assistant to the regional manager or whichever human institution we have in mind as we read these words will shape the way that we read the words themselves. But they shouldn't. Because 1 Peter was written to a specific group of people at a specific point in history, and its meaning can only be rightly understood if we read it in that context. Rather than importing our circumstances into the text, which might drive us toward dramatically different conclusions about what God intends to say through these words, we need to recognize what these words meant to believers in the first century in order to help us understand what they actually mean in the 21st century and elsewhere. Many have concluded that this passage is in fact a command for Christians to obey their leaders in all circumstances except those which lead to sin. The idea is that we should all obey authority unless we were being explicitly instructed to do something sinful. And while I think it might be reasonable to make that point from scripture, I don't think that's what this scripture is saying. Because Peter doesn't make any exceptions in this passage in cases where there is wicked leadership in power. He doesn't say, be subject to every human institution unless that institution is telling you to sin. He doesn't say that. There are no exceptions to this imperative. Only the absolute, grammatically emphasized command to be subject, to submit. And on top of that, Peter really hammers home the point when he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. That is an incredibly important detail that Peter includes for us because at the point that he's writing this letter, everyone he is writing to is living under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And the, the head of that empire was a guy named Nero. Now, even if you don't know much about church history at all, you may recognize the name Nero. Because he famously authorized the first wave of state-sanctioned persecutions of Christians throughout his empire. After a big fire had burned a chunk of the city of Rome, uh, which many people suspected that Nero himself had started, he publicly blamed this new movement that had been growing in influence and number throughout his city. Christians had publicly proclaimed that their savior, Jesus Christ, was the king of kings, and that type of language didn't sit well with a guy like Nero. Hearing that there was a group in his city that was multiplying quickly and saying things like that caused him to feel somewhat threatened, perhaps, or at the very least, annoyed. 
And so he blamed Christians for the fire that had burned much of the city of Rome, and he used that accusation to carry out swift punishment. Christians were tortured, imprisoned, and shamed. Because according to the Roman historian Tacitus, who recorded the events of Nero's reign, Christians were burned as torches to light the nighttime streets of the city of Rome. This is the guy that's in power when Peter writes these words. He was the pinnacle of the human institution of the Roman Empire in which Christianity was illegal. So referencing the emperor specifically, Peter clearly could not have meant obey when he says, be subject to every human institution. His comment, though, that whether it be to the emperor as supreme, though it makes very clear what he did not mean, doesn't clarify necessarily what he does mean. But the beginning of verse 14, in which he says, or to governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good might help to clarify what he does mean. The word for governor here is used as a title in the New Testament to refer only to a couple of people. And the majority of those references are to a guy named Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a governor in the Roman Empire assigned to oversee the region of Judea at the time of Jesus' arrest and conviction. He oversaw the execution of Christ, and it was on his orders that Jesus was abused and put to death. He was a part of the system of government in the empire that was tasked with keeping the peace and suppressing unrest. Peter comments here that these governors are sent to, the, to reward those who do good, and that might be comforting to us. That line may be comforting to us if we neglect the fact that Jesus, the only truly good person who ever lived, was sentenced to death by one of these governors. So we understand that the good that they're sent to reward is not the good, or is the good of not shaking things up, not inciting rebellion, not disturbing the peace. It is the good of allegiance to the emperor. And Peter's reference to the office of governor foreshadows how the rest of this passage will unfold. It's a subtle reminder of how Jesus himself made himself subject to human institutions. And in the rest of this passage, Peter basically gives three reasons why believers should be subject as Christ was to the rule of earthly authorities. It's the explanation of why we, as Christ followers, should willingly pay the cost of our calling. He begins first by saying we should be subject to earthly authority because it is one way that God reaches those who do not know him. In a mysterious way, God is at work in the life in the lives of those who do not know him simply by the way that we live our lives as people called by his name. It is a way in which he has chosen to work. Peter says, for, we should do this, for it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Though there are times in our lives when it, was, when it is certainly right to debate an idea, to argue a point that we know is right, moments in which we are called to stand up for the defenseless or the victim, but when it comes to my rights and my treatment, the fact this passage proclaims is that it is God's will to speak truth and wisdom through our conduct. This is a hard lesson for me to learn. Because like Peter, 
I have a habit of speaking first and thinking later. <laughs> and I often find myself regretting some wayward comment. I often tell people what I think even if they didn't ask. Sometimes, someday, my headstone will read something like, here lies Travis Vaklovic, he had a lot of opinions. <laughs> but I'm convicted by the truth of this passage that it is by doing good that we silence ignorance. By keeping our conduct honorable, God brings people nearer to him and nearer to the truth. And in the age of Facebook and Twitter, this is a message I think we really need to hear because we are really good at letting people know what we think. As a society, we have reached a whole new level of opinion-sharing efficiency. Obviously, though, we've been called to speak truth, to preach the gospel. It's what Peter is doing with this book that we're reading. But the Lord has chosen not only to use our words and our tweets, but also our actions and the way that we respond to injustice in our lives and unfairness when it's directed at us to speak to those who do not know him at all. Actions characterized by humility and a willing submission to human institutions. Our conduct. The way that our character is worked out in the way we live our lives is a visible witness to the world of the God who is at work in us. There are countless examples of the way that God does this. But there is perhaps none more powerful than at the very end of Mark's gospel. As Jesus is dying, hung on a cross alongside two criminals and being mocked by onlookers, as his suffering intensifies and he feels the weight of our sin, he cries out, experiencing the judgment that he accepted in place of all of his people. And at the moment he drew his last breath, a Roman soldier took notice. This soldier, who Mark tells us had attained the rank of centurion, which assures us that he has seen his fair share of death and dying, sees Jesus there and is shaken to his core. And Mark records in chapter 15 that when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. He wasn't converted by an eloquent speech nor was he convicted of Jesus' divinity by a well-reasoned theological treatise. Certainly those things have their place, as Scripture makes clear, but Mark says that this man was gripped by the way in which Jesus died. He was gripped by his conduct. Jesus' conduct, his willingness to be the subject, to be subject to human institutions that would take his life and commit the greatest injustice ever carried out was the means by which God willed to reach this soldier. That willingness that we see in Christ is true freedom, the freedom that Peter refers to in verse 16. Because just as Christ was free to remain on his throne, but willingly laid it aside for the sake of his people, being born in the form of a servant, according to Philippians 2, we are free in his name too free to lay aside what might have captivated us before, what might have drawn us before, what did enslave us before. Because in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, no longer desperate and looking for hope and fulfillment in a world that is unable to provide it. 
We need no longer fear death or suffering because in Christ we have victory over them all. We have received in Christ an eternal inheritance that Peter has told us about already, which is being guarded for us by Christ who is himself guarding us as we live here now as sojourners and exiles in a world that is not our home. So we are free, as Christ was, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and even to honor the emperor who might demand everything. Because in our honorable conduct, God is at work in the hearts of those who do not know his son. And that alone, I think, would be sufficient. That would be reason enough to be subject to human institutions, to hear this command from scripture and say, yes, okay, the Lord is going to work through the way that I respond to unfairness in my life in order to convict people and draw them nearer to himself, that alone would be reason enough to obey this scriptural command. But Peter uses another powerful illustration to establish a second reason why we should humbly go where Christ leads us. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. The word translated servants here is a unique one that typically is reserved for those who are domestic employees in people's homes. It evokes the image of a wealthy estate owner abusing his authority, treating his employees unfairly, and demanding from them more than is right. But the application of this point is much broader than that. The point that Peter is making here is for more than just the butlers of this world, it is for all of us. And it is another calling to endure unfair treatment. That is a difficult thing for any of us to hear from Scripture. But Peter grounds it in this passage's second reason for doing so. We should be subject to earthly authority because it is how we imitate Christ. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's the same logic as in Romans 5, when Paul demonstrates the magnitude of Christ's love for us by pointing out that he died for us while we were still sinning against him. While we were his enemies, he died for us. Of course, Paul points out, someone might dare to die for a righteous person, for a good person. But what incredible love Christ shows for us by dying for us when our hearts were full of love for sin and hatred for his holiness. It is a gracious thing, Peter says twice, to willingly endure with our mindset on God's plan, God's provision, and the hope of the gospel. And it is all the more gracious when we endure that abuse for doing good. It is how we imitate Christ. On the night that he was arrested, when Jesus knew what awaited him, he went to Gethsemane to pray. It was late at night, so late, in fact, that all of his disciples fell asleep waiting for him to return. But Jesus was wide awake, knowing what was about to happen. He was sorrowful according to Matthew 26. And he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And later that same night, he prayed again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. There had never been a greater injustice carried out in history than what was about to take place. And no one knew the scope of that injustice more clearly and more completely than Christ himself. None of us like being treated unfairly. None of us like being the recipient of injustice. It's something that is wired into each one of our brains. It's easy to see that if you spend any time at all with little kids. <laughs> because kids will let you know if something is unfair to them. When I was a kid, my brothers and I would fight a lot over who got to ride in the front seat in the car. I don't know if that's something that kids still fight about, but my brothers and I certainly did. And we would say things like, but he had the front seat yesterday for a ride that was 13 minutes long, and I only had the front seat for 8.24 minutes. I've calculated this, Mom, so I should get the front seat again today. We're naturally disposed toward noticing any unfairness when it is directed at us. We may not vocalize it the same way that we did when we were kids, but we are just as good at noticing it, and the stakes only get higher the older that we get. Jesus certainly knew the scope of the injustice that was about to be carried out. Yet, rather than fleeing or fighting, he turned toward his father in prayer, and twice he said, your will be done. It is a gracious thing. And it was a gracious thing when, mindful of his father, Christ endured sorrows and suffering, though it was unjust. And it is a gracious thing when we grow in Christ-like mindfulness of our father and facing injustice, we pray as he did, not my will, but yours be done. I have a hunch that if we did a survey of our prayers, we would notice a theme. Because I think we take very seriously the scriptural instruction to make our requests known to God, just like Christ did in this passage from Matthew 26, we ask for the things that we're hoping for. And in moments of crisis and injustice directed at us when we're facing unfairness that may cost us relationships or opportunities or even careers, we cry out for God's intervention because we take seriously the instruction to make our requests to God known. And we should. It is part of our declaration of dependence on God's provision. But I think our prayers are often lopsided. How often? in the middle of a crisis or facing an injustice. When we're being treated unfairly, do we say, not my will, but yours be done. It is a gracious thing when we face injustice to place our trust in a sovereign God because it is what the master of grace himself did, knowing that he would suffer unjustly. It is how we imitate Christ. And being raised up in salvation, the Holy Spirit working in us, we will be more and more able, like Christ, to face sorrow or injustice for doing good with a resolution to trust in our Heavenly Father. And because God has chosen to work in the world through our willing subjection, by showcasing the graciousness of his Son through us, we've been called to follow him for our good and for the good of the watching world.
Peter's third reason we should obey this instruction to be subject to earthly authority is, is because it is how we behold Christ. We have been called, according to verse 21, to follow in Christ's footsteps, to willingly go where God leads, even if it is difficult, even if it leads to injustice and abuse for doing good. The cost of our calling is a high one. But in following Christ along the path that he walked ahead of us, we behold him more clearly. We rejoice in him more truly, and we comprehend his love for us more completely. He committed no sin, verse 22 reminds us, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This line of this passage, according to one scholar, is the gravitational center of the book of 1 Peter, and it helps us to understand the difficult calling that we see throughout this book. Because it is a very hard thing to hear, that we will face injustice for following Christ, that we will face abuse for doing good. It is a hard thing to hear that we have even been called to it. It was certainly hard for believers in the first century to face that reality also, and their struggles make ours look like a walk in the park. But it was worth it for them, and it is worth it for us, because in enduring it, in our willing subjection to that rejection and abuse, we see Christ's willing subjection to abuse for us more clearly. We have been called to this, summoned to it, because God uses it to help us see and rejoice in the gospel more and more as we walk through it. And as we see him more, the more strength that we will have to persevere. That's the essence of Hebrews 12.3, which says, Consider him, consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that, set your eyes on Christ, who endured this, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is the fuel that enables our perseverance. Beholding Christ, we understand his humility and his sacrifice more, and it fuels our ability to follow him along that path as we go. It's like the difference between watching a movie, a documentary about hiking a mountain, and hiking the mountain yourself. You might be impressed after you watch the documentary. You might even admire the intrepid explorers who first made the ascent a long time ago. But that clearly isn't the same thing as doing it yourself. Because when you're on the path and you're walking, following in the footsteps of the ones who, who went there before you, with every step as you feel the air getting thinner and your legs getting more and more tired, your ability to admire those first mountaineers grows. Your appreciation for the accomplishment of summiting this mountain intensifies and you are better able to understand the work involved in meeting that goal. When we follow in Christ's footsteps, when we endure hardship for doing good, when there is a cost that we must pay to obey Christ's calling for us, we behold his sacrifice for us and the cost that he paid for us more clearly. We understand him more fully and we rejoice in him more truly.
And that's the point that Peter lands on at the end of this passage in verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is quoting here in these verses from a famous Old Testament passage, making several quick references to Isaiah chapter 53. It is a reminder of the promise that God made to his people that one day a savior would come. That promise was made to his people while they were living in captivity because their nation had been conquered by Babylon and they had been kidnapped and forced to live out and serve in a foreign land. But God promised to them that a savior was coming who would rescue them from their captivity. Peter is declaring here that that savior has come and his name is Jesus Christ. And the rescue that his people receive is more than from a geopolitical captivity, but from the enslaving power of sin itself. And in Christ, in this rescuer, we have an eternal hope. And it's with that reminder that by his wounds we have been healed, we press on. We endure and humbly trust in God's sovereign design. This passage is a call to be subject to human institutions. It is a call to be like Christ, who did so for us. Because the scary truth is that standing for Christ, and for the gospel, holding fast to the words of scripture, and being willing to set sail against the current of our culture will demand a high cost. It may cost us a friendship or a career opportunity. It is the cost of our calling. And even though our instinct is to defend ourselves, to refuse the cost and insist on our rights, we have been called instead to follow Christ, who laid aside everything that he deserved and took on the form of a servant instead. Living for Christ in a world that rejects him and his word as backward and unenlightened is hard, and we will be tempted to run. But instead, we're called to willingly persevere, to be subject to the cost that it will demand. Because in doing so, God is at work in the lives of those who do not know him. He is at work to make us more Christ-like and to help us to behold Christ more completely. And that is what it means to be subject to human institutions. It is not a command to obey them, but a command to accept the cost of serving Christ, even when it demands everything that we have, crying out as William Tyndale did, Lord, open the eyes of this world. Will you pray with me? God, we are not in denial this morning about the difficulty of following you, obeying you, proclaiming the gospel, and trusting in you and you alone in a world that has rejected you. We know that doing so, as we are strangers and exiles in a world that is not our home, we know that it will demand a high cost. And so this morning, we do not run from it, we willingly subject ourselves 
to the cost that will be demanded for living for you in this world, placing our trust in you as you are at work in the lives of those who do not know you, as you are at work in us to build us up to people who reflect you, and as you are at work in our hearts to help us see and savor the gospel more. We ask that you would do that today, and we respond to you in praise. Amen.